The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and no one is, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you, did I tell you not to sin against the boy? And you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be the spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know you are honest men. 
Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in in the land. As they emptied their sack, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said to the Jacob and Jacob, their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin and this has come against me. And Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you should bring down my gray hairs with the sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, well, good morning. Um, You will realize I am not Justin, but my name is Sam Schmidt. I am a pastoral intern here at Sacred City Church, so I... I get the joy and privilege and honor to to bring to you God's word today. Um, Give me a minute here. Here we go. Um, I'm incredibly excited to be up here today. I'm I'm incredibly blessed to have this opportunity. Um, Studying this text, studying Genesis 42 has not only been refreshing to me, but has also um, brought about a lot of conviction and and ultimately repentance. So I stand before you today, not as a man who's perfect, um, claiming to know exactly how to do it or I'm doing it perfectly, but I'm a man who's standing up here who's in the middle of what I'm trying to preach. So um, I hope you receive that. This is me and my humbleness today. Um, I don't have a lot of answers, but but we do have a God who does have a lot of answers. So we're going to turn to him um, to get some answers. There are times in life where we have no clue what God is doing. Sometimes we don't understand why God would lead us into a season of, of darkness and, and depression. Um, and there are some seasons where we have no clue why God would bless us so greatly, why he would, he would lavish us with good gifts. And if there's anyone in the Bible who understands this feeling, it's Joseph. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of Joseph, and and we're currently right in the middle of the story of redemption between Joseph and his brothers. And it's spread over the next few chapters. So today we just get a a quick little snapshot of what it looks like, or or I guess the foundation um, for for this story that's going to pan out over the next few chapters. The whole story in and of itself, the whole story of Joseph and his brothers is is ultimately a story of reconciliation. And although we don't get the full story today or this week, we're able to pick up on a a couple of important elements um, in the story. And although we've been looking at a lot of things from the perspective of Joseph, we have an opportunity this morning to learn a lesson from his brothers on repentance and the riches that come from it. As we look at them, as they look at what they experience, we will not only learn how to repent, but I will also give a great effort to explain why we repent. We're going to take a look at the riches of repentance. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that you have gathered us in his name today. We thank you that you have gathered us to be your people. 
Um, we thank you, God, that, that your word is rich in truth, um, that you are a God who is rich in mercy, that as we, as we search um, the depths of your love, we, we find, God, that, that we are accepted, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. And I pray, Father, as we look at this text, that your spirit would reveal to us what we need to know. I pray that your spirit would, re- would bring about a sense of conviction. I pray that the spirit would bring a, about a sense of hope and a sense of joy that as we explore the depths of the gospel, Lord, that you would be glorified. Be with us now, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So <clears throat> I'm going to try to make this story plain for you. There's some, maybe you're joining us for the first time and you haven't been able to kind of catch up um, through all the sermons, but tracking through Old Testament stories can be kind of difficult. Um, there's a lot of names that sound the same. There's a lot of names that you don't know how to pronounce. Um, there's cities that you've never heard of. Um, there's stories and family ties that all get kind of jumbled up. So I'm going to do my best to, to lay out Joseph's story, where he kind of is coming from, from his home life, how he's gotten to where he is now in Egypt, and then, and then we'll kind of tackle Genesis 42. Now, the backdrop of this story in Genesis 42 um, started 20 years before this. Um, Joseph is the son of Jacob and Rachel. Now, Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob was kind of a Mac daddy. He had four different wives. And of his four wives, Rachel was his favorite. Now, when Rachel gave birth to her first son, that son automatically became Jacob's favorite son. And so Joseph is known as the favorite. And being the favorite, Joseph is treated different. He seems to have a, a special seat at the table, so to speak. He's given a a colorful robe from his father as a gift to indicate that his father loves him in a a completely special way to all the other brothers. Not only was Joseph treated different by his father, but but he he was a dreamer. He had these dreams where, where in these dreams it was revealed to him that his family would bow down to him. And so Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph... Being kind of young and restless and um, reckless even, um, he doesn't really know how to tame his tongue, goes around running to his family telling, hey, by the way, I got this dream, all you guys are going to bow down to me someday. That doesn't go well for him. Um, His brothers don't like that too much. And because of his swagger, because of these dreams that he he talks about, his brothers despised him. And one day when he went out into the field, they plotted to kill him. Now, They didn't kill him, but instead, they sold him into slavery and pocketed the money. Now, being sold into slavery, Joseph makes his way into Egypt. And in this time that God has relocated Joseph to Egypt, he takes him through a season of of high highs and low lows. Joseph, as a slave, rises to power in Potiphar's home. This This is Joseph rising up. This is a high for him. And that all kind of comes toppling down when Joseph is falsely accused of of raping Potiphar's wife. And that gets him put into prison. And that's a low, low for him. And while he's in prison, he interprets the dreams of two men who are servants of Pharaoh. Hoping that the dude that he helped out in prison would remember him once that guy got out. Never happened. Joseph was left behind in prison, making his lows even lower. And two years later, that guy that he helped out, 
remembers him and he gets called up to help Pharaoh, who's the, the most powerful man in the world, interpret his dream. So we see Joseph here on the rise. He's moving up again. And so not only does Joseph successfully interpret Pharaoh's dream, but he also constructs a plan to keep Egypt from going into this famine that he, he interpreted in the dream. So in doing so, Joseph, the highs are getting higher and he gets promoted to second in command. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. This is the, the highest of highs here. Not only is he Pharaoh's right-hand man, but he becomes the second most powerful man in the world. And that brings us to chapter 42. Joseph's plan that he gave Pharaoh is successful. Egypt is thriving in the midst of famine. They've got food stored up for them. There are other countries coming to them to buy food. And Joseph's plan is working. Now back home, Joseph's family, Jacob and his brothers, they've hit a hard time too. It's interesting that even though um, Jacob and his family, they're, they're God's chosen people, they still fell upon hard times. So Jacob walked in the room one day. The boys are sitting around. He says, why, why are you looking at each other? <laughs> why, why are you sitting here? Why are you talking about Chick-fil-A and Whitey's? You're hungry. I get that. We're all hungry. Why don't you go do something about it? And so 10 of the brothers go to Egypt for food. Now, here, here's something that's interesting that Jacob, the father, sent 10 of them. There were actually 11 behind, but he kept one back for himself, Benjamin. Benjamin was kept back for, jo- for Jacob, and he, Benjamin, has replaced Joseph as the favorite son. So the brothers, they arrive in Egypt, and the first thing they do when they get there is they bow down to Joseph. That that dream that Joseph had years and years ago seems to be coming true. And, and it's one thing because it's a cultural thing to bow down before rulers of a different country, especially if you're coming to get something from them. But, but this is a bow that held much more significance. That dream that Joseph had over 20 years ago is almost fulfilled. And as these brothers bow down to Joseph, Joseph recognizes them. He sees them like, these are my brothers, and they're bowing down to me. There's something about this that seems familiar, a little bit of deja vu. But while the brothers are being bowed down, they don't recognize Joseph. Because Joseph looks like an Egyptian. As we learned last week, he was clean-shaven. He had robes on. He was all decked out in bling-bling. So he didn't look the same as his brothers. But what's about to happen indicates that God has brought Joseph to a place where he has forgiven his brothers for selling him into slavery. Because rather than plotting retaliation against them, he comes up with a plan to help them. Before he can help them, though, he needs to test them to see if his brothers have had a change of heart since they sold him into slavery. Joseph's grand scheme, his great plan, was to be reconciled to his family. He wanted to be with his father and his brothers again. And although the the plan doesn't um, make complete sense to us, that some things you kind of wondered what he was thinking to do it, but but this all happens under God's providence. 
And there are times in life where God does things or allows things to happen that we just don't understand. So Jacob, moving forward with his plan, he treats them, he treats his brothers like he would any other foreigners, especially in a time of national crisis. He says, he speaks roughly to them. He treats them like foreigners. Now he isn't being abusive here. He's just following the protocol of, of Egyptian law. You know, he's, he's looking to protect his people. And so Joseph interrogates his brothers and, and he accuses them of being spies and He's doing this not to be mean, not to be a bully, but he's doing this to get information out of them about their father and their brother that they had left behind. And actually, in the process of interrogating them, the brothers admit that we have a brother that is no more. So Joseph throws them into prison. And in his original plan, Joseph's original plan was to hold nine of them in captivity while he sent one back home to bring back Benjamin. And then he would release them all together. But instead, Joseph shows them kindness and holds back one brother in captivity while nine go to bring back the one brother. This kindness that Joseph shows them is meant to lead the brothers into repentance. Their repentance puts the brothers, the brothers' repentance puts them in the way of what they need most more grace. And so here at Sacred City, we talk a lot about repentance. It's very important to who we are as people, as God's people. Because grace has been shown to us. Grace is shown to us first so that we are able to repent. And in doing so, in repenting, we find even more grace. If there were no grace, if grace did not exist... There wouldn't be a reason or a means to repent. In the gospel of Mark, the first words from Jesus' mouth is repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a twofold action. It's a turning from our sin and a turning toward God. Repentance is a grace in itself that leads to more grace. It's an opportunity to part ways from our sin and be drawn near to God. Think of repentance like this. If sin is poison and we're we're choking back poison, grace only takes not only takes us away from that poison so we don't poison ourselves more, but repentance is made so that we can not only be healed and find new life. So we're, we're saved from sickness, but also given new life. Repentance moves us into a greater grace. It is a grace because we're being moved away from something that's killing us, which is sin. And we're being moved toward, we're moved closer toward the one who gives us life, which is also grace. Repentance isn't, isn't something that we do one time and then are all done. We don't, we don't pray a prayer of repentance and we're done forever. No, no, no. Luther, in the first of his 95 theses, was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The life of a Christian is a life of repenting and believing the gospel. We won't be done, like we're never done repenting. We won't be done repenting until our Lord Jesus returns 
or calls us home. Repentance is something that we must do forever here on this earth. And if it's something that we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives, we should probably learn how to do it and how to do it well. So that's what we're going to look at today. The four elements of repentance that we learn from our brothers is what we're going to be zooming in on here. And those four elements are first, conviction. Secondly, we're going to take a look at at godly fear. Thirdly, godly grief. And then we'll take a look at confession. These are the four elements of repentance that we learn from the brothers today. So first off, conviction. The brothers are convicted. They have an awareness of what they did to Joseph back in the day when they sold him into slavery. They had an awareness of what they did was wrong. Conviction begins with God revealing our sin to us. When we realize that we are not blameless, when we realize that we are sinners, that we have messed up, that we have fallen short, that we have not reached the standard that God requires, conviction is brought about. And the Holy Spirit is the one who initiates this conviction. We are actually blind to our sin until the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, opens up our eyes to see that we are in fact sinners. And there are, are, a, there are a bunch of different ways that, that the Holy Spirit goes about doing this. And, and sometimes it's, it's major ways. Something happens right in front of our face that goes, oh yeah, that reminded me of a big mess up. Sometimes it's, it's through a series of ironic events, and sometimes it's, it's small reminders. But for the brothers, it seems to be the series of, of ironic events. Now, walk through this with me. Think of this. The brothers are going to be reminded of Joseph because their dad now has a new favorite. The, their dad has a favorite. That, that spot of favorite was once filled by Joseph. Now it's filled by someone else. It still exists. That position in and of itself would remind them of Joseph. Now, another thing is, as they go into Egypt, they all bow down. They're all bowing down to someone. That, to me, I feel like that would, you know, like I, I think I've heard that. I, I think I've heard someone tell me that I would be bowing down to someone before. That we'd all be doing that. So, so it's a reminder of Joseph's dream that he told them about. The next thing that, that happens uh, is Joseph, while he's inquiring about their family, the brothers actually confess that there's a brother who's no more. Once again, bringing to mind Joseph. Next, the brothers are put into custody. They're put into jail. They're put in prison. And that's similar to what they did to Joseph and by throwing him in a pit. Hey, man, we're in jail. Didn't we throw someone in jail before? Didn't we toss someone in a pit? That's a reminder. And then the tipping point for them is when Joseph mentions fearing God in verse 18. Not only is this this reminding them that they are accountable to their dad for the loss of their son, but they're also accountable to God for their sins. God made the brothers aware of their sin. He, He convicted them of their sin, of selling Joseph, and he does the same to us. God convicts us. Using his Holy Spirit, he convicts us of our sin. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever seen how someone else reacted to their kids in the grocery store and been reminded of of how you were impatient with your kids earlier that afternoon? 
Have you ever seen a picture that was taken last week and that you don't remember because you were too drunk to remember the picture being taken? Have you ever opened the trash can to find an empty tub of ice cream? Because rather than turning to God when you're feeling down and out, you turn to to food and, and whatever makes you feel comfortable. Have you ever seen someone else cheating on a test? And then you remember that one time in Spanish class where you cheated. God God convicts us of our sin. And we can have two reactions to this work. We can either respond in faith like we're designed to. Or we can respond in self-righteousness. That as we're being convicted, oh, that's totally for somebody else. I don't need to hear that. That's not for me. That's so I can tell somebody else about their sin. I knew of someone who needs to hear this. That would be self-righteousness. And we can't truly repent of something until we are first convicted that it's sin. And the Holy Spirit makes us aware of our sin through community, through prayer and meditation, through reading of scripture, and through revelation, just by flat out showing us where we're sinning. And, and he does this with the desire to see us repent. If someone in your MC, if your spouse or your friend helps God convict you of your sin, good. That's good. God's at work. If you're convicted by reading scripture, good. That's God's spirit at work convicting you. If you're convicted in your prayer time, good. That's great. God is at work. And ultimately, it is God who convicts us of our sin. He may use other people, he may use scenarios, he may use reminders, but they are all orchestrated by God when conviction is brought forth. Feeling this conviction of our sin is the first element of repentance. The next element is is a sense of godly fear. And we see this in the brothers. They're they're not only fearing for their lives because their lives are being threatened, but they have a deeper sense of fear within them. Beneath that fear, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a fear that if their conviction is true, if what God has shown them is true, that there will be punishment. This is a healthy fear of God's justice and of God's righteousness. God cannot let sin go, sins go unpunished because that would compromise God's character. So sin must be accounted for. These brothers are for certain that God is going to use this Egyptian man, Joseph, to bring about their punishment. As boys, they were instructed in the way of the Lord. They probably remember the passage from Genesis 9. says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In our repenting, we too should have a sense of godly fear. Conviction leads us to a place of of healthy fear and gives us an awareness of what we deserve. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That if we are sinners, what we deserve is the grave. But it also reminds us that if, if if God were not a gracious God, that we would be in a world of hurt. We would be in eternity of hurt. 
which leads us to element number three of repentance, godly grief. This godly grief that we see in the brothers produces a sense of, of, excuse me, this godly fear we see in the brothers produces a sense of godly grief. They speak of their deep distress in verse 21. There's a, there's, there is a difference between godly grief and shame. Let me tell you why. Shame cripples us. Shame prevents us from moving forward. Shame wants us to, to cover up and, and hide ourselves. We can't function in shame. We can't move forward in shame. We're too scared of what others think of us in shame. But godly grief is different. Godly grief is, is way different. Godly grief mobilizes us. Godly grief moves us closer to God's heart. Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. To be truly repentant, they must be led to a grief that pushes them into further repentance. Deep at the heart level, they are distressed by what they have done. Not only because it's inconvenient to them now, not only because they're in the jail cell, but they have a deep, deep remorse for the sin that they've, they've done, the hurt and pain that they've caused. They, they feel that weight. And we too should be grieved over our sin. We should see how our sin causes us to be separated from God. Not only separated from God, but separated from one another. Deep in our hearts, we should feel this this sense of sorrow and remorse for our sins. This leads us, as Paul says, to salvation without regret. And the final element that we see from the brothers is is this element of confession. That as they've been convicted of their sin, as they've had a sense of godly fear, as they felt godly grief, they are now free to confess their sin. Hiding their mistakes now will not accomplish anything. Now that they've been convicted, they can't go around it. They have to lay it all out in plain sight. James in his letter says, confess your sins and pray for one another so that you may be healed. To be healed, to be healed or to be reconciled, they must confess their sins. Self-justifying does no good here. All of them, with the exception of Reuben, confess their sins. They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They don't make any excuses. They don't sugarcoat it. They confess it as it is. And we too must have that same sense of candidness with our confession. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to own it. We want to justify ourselves. We want it to make it look like we're not as bad as we, as we feel like we're convicted of. And I'm awful at this. I'm the worst at this. Someone comes at me, at me saying, hey, Sam, you're sinning. I want to justify myself. I want to prove myself why, right. Ask my, ask my wife. Ask my MC. I am bad at this. But when we try to justify ourselves, when we try to make it look 
so it's not as bad as it as it seems we miss out on a deeper grace and as acts 3 says we miss out on the refreshing of the spirit that comes with repentance romans 5:20 says where sin abounds grace abounds all the more now that doesn't mean that we go out and intentionally sin more it means that we're free to confess our sin as it is we're free to lay it all out on the line knowing and being assured that there is grace for us. Now you might say, Sam, this sounds like a lot of hard work. Repentance sounds, sounds challenging and painful. And I don't think I want to do it. You know, I don't, I don't want to feel convicted. I don't want to feel, I don't really want to feel grief. I don't want to have to fear. Yeah, it, it is. Repentance is challenging. It's difficult. Oftentimes there's, there's, um, a lot of tears that come along with repentance. But let me tell you why it's worth it. Think of it this way. Repentance is like building a mansion. The process of building a mansion is a tedious and exhausting process. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears go into the construction. But as soon as that puppy is up... As soon as that, that puppy is built and outfitted with furniture and decorated, you don't just have a, a pile of lumber and textiles anymore. You have a mansion. The finished product is something that is astonishing and breathtaking. All that agonizing work, all that tedious work, all those skilled cuts and, and aligning seems worth it now. You don't even think about those things anymore because you are enjoying your mansion. And that is what repentance is like. It's the hard, often painful work of repentance that moves us into something better. It isn't the process of repenting that we enjoy so much, but it's the riches that come from repenting. Think back to the brothers now in, in Genesis 42. The repentance of, their bro- of the brothers puts them in the way of even more grace. The grace of repenting puts them in the way of receiving even more grace. All of this stuff had to happen. All this repenting had to happen before they could move forward in reconciliation. Seeing that they had a heart change... Joseph extends even more grace to them. Not only does he spare their life, not only does he keep them from being rotten away in, the, in, the, in prison, but he gives them blessing. He doesn't give them what they deserve. Rather, he gives them what they don't deserve. Joseph goes and fills up their bags with grain. Not only that, but he gives them travel provisions. And then to top it off, he takes that wad of money that they all had, puts it right back in their bag. Their bags are loaded with riches. Their repentance had led them to riches. Church, how the same is true of us. As we repent to God and to others, we are put in the way of even more grace. 
Repentance doesn't just leave us in a place of despair. It leads us to the riches of Christ. And as we repent, as we turn from our sin and turn toward God, Christ makes us rich. Ephesians says, Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so, I want to take a look at these riches of Christ. I want, to, I want to take a look at what it means to be rich in Christ. And so to do that first, we need to look at the nature of these riches. Ephesians 3 says that the riches of Christ are unsearchable. It's like that mansion you built. You think you've seen every room. But as soon as you open one door, that one door leads to six other doors. And those six other doors lead to six other doors. And those six other doors lead to six other doors. It just keeps going and going. It seems unsearchable. We can't completely know all of it. But just because we can't know about all of them, that sure isn't going to stop us from trying to learn something about them. We cannot know all of them on this side of eternity completely. In fact, every sermon at Sacred City is dedicated to exploring the riches of Christ. And so should our lives. We should live lives that are dedicated to exploring the unsearchable riches of Christ. The next thing we need to know about the riches of Christ is that they're imperishable. From eternity on, we will be overwhelmed by the riches of Christ. Our riches are not here on earth where moth and rust can destroy. But our riches are in heaven where they will be displayed forever. These riches do not expire. And the last thing that we see, or the last thing we we need to know about these riches of Christ is that they're inexhaustible. That these riches will not run out. There will always be sufficient riches for us in Christ. You cannot out-sin God's grace. Christ is rich in mercy. Ephesians 3.20 says that, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So we see that the riches of Christ are eternally immeasurably, imperishably, inexhaustible. Let me say that again. The riches of Christ are eternally, immeasurably, imperishably, inexhaustible. And like I said, it is impossible for us to know completely the riches of Christ, but that doesn't mean that we don't know anything about the riches of Christ Because God has been gracious to us. God has revealed himself to us. Not only in the gospel of Christ. But he has given us his word. To tell us what God is like. And what the riches of Christ look like. And as we look at scripture. We see that the greatest of the riches of Christ. Is the Godhead himself. It is the Trinity. It is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit himself. That we gain in the riches of Christ. Jesus is in the place of Joseph. Because of our sin, he has every right to condemn us. We have sinned against him time and time again, and he has the right to punish us and to leave us in the pit of hell for eternity. But 
Jesus is gracious. He chooses to give us grace. He chooses to not to he chooses to not give us what we deserve, but to give us what we don't deserve. And it comes at his expense. Jesus gave himself up for us. He gave himself to us. He laid his life down for us. He gave everything he had. He withheld nothing for us. He left the riches of heaven and became poor so we could be made rich in Christ. Because of the sinless life that Jesus lived for us and the death that he died on our behalf, we are made right with God. And because Jesus gave himself to us, we now have access to Jesus Christ himself, as well as the Heavenly Father, as well as the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest of the riches, to know that we are made right with God, to know that Christ has reconciled us to God. That we can enjoy God forever. We don't live in the sense of fear that we will be crushed anymore. We live in the freedom of the riches of Christ. Knowing that, that as God looks at us, he sees his perfect son in our place. That the riches of Christ have been handed over to us. Not only, not only do we receive the riches of God himself, but we receive the riches of good gifts that God has given us in Christ. Listen here. This is, this is like a 50,000 foot view. And like I said, every sermon will be dedicated to exploring the unsearchable riches of Christ. But this is what God shows us. That in Christ, those who are dead in sin have been made alive in him. Those who are weary and heavy laden now have rest. Those who are filled with sorrow now have joy. Those who are filled with anxiety now have peace. Those who are weak are now strong. Those who are sick are now healed. Those who are foolish are now wise in the spirit. Those who are alienated have now been adopted. Those who are lost are now found. Those who are wandering now have the spirit's guidance. And the Holy Spirit gives us good gifts. Gives us love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see that we have been made rich in Christ? The poor are now rich in Jesus. Oh, church, I urge you, I urge you to live like you are rich in Christ. To live generously because Christ has withheld nothing from you. To love unconditionally because Christ loved us while we were still his enemies. To serve wholeheartedly because Jesus laid down his life for you. To study relentlessly because God has revealed to us the mystery of the gospel. To live life as worship of the one who has made you rich. Because nothing else demands your affections and praise like the one who gave us life. To the one who gave us the riches of Christ. Do these things 
Because God's riches have been lavished upon you. This is a call to share the unsearchable riches of Christ. To share with your your co-workers and your boss. To, To show the unsearchable riches of Christ to your children and to your spouse, to your roommates and to your friends. To your MC and to your church family. Especially to those who do not know Christ. To your neighbors and to your city. Show them what the unsearchable riches of Christ looks like. Show them that you have been greatly blessed in Christ. If you are hearing this this message of, of repent and believe the gospel for the first time and have not done so, I encourage you to do so. You will not find anything greater on this earth than the riches of Christ. There's nothing that can compare. I urge you to turn away from your sin and turn toward God who will make you rich in Christ. God hasn't given us these riches so that we can hoard them to ourselves. He has given them to us so that through us, through the church, through Christ's people, all will know of the riches of Christ. This is God's mission. He's blessed us to show the world what his riches look like. Go, church. Go and make disciples who are rich in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are gracious. You are gracious in not, not only that you allow us to repent, not only do you convict us of our sin, not only do you instill a sense of godly fear and godly grief and lead us into confession, God, but you pile up grace upon grace. And through our, our repentance, Through Christ's work, we are reconciled to you. And being reconciled to you, that we are made rich. We are made rich in Christ. We are are blessed greatly. We, We now have life. Those of us who are dead now are alive. I pray, Father, that we would be good stewards of these riches. I pray that we would be people who live on mission. I pray that we would be people who who give generously. I pray that we would be people who live differently from this world because we have been made rich in a very unique way through Christ Jesus. And I pray, Father, that as we approach the table, that we are reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made to make us rich. That there, as as he was sacrificed on the cross, as he was hung on the tree, God, that our sin was placed upon him and his righteousness was placed upon us. And this meal reminds us of that grace. It reminds us of the gospel. And so as we come forward, I pray that you would bless this meal to us, that that not only would this be a meal that that rejuvenates us, but it sends us out, Father. It sends us out um, with the mentality, with the mindset, with the deep conviction in our heart that we are rich. Thank you, Father, for what you've done, Jesus, and what you're doing in us through him and your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.